The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Would you remain standing with me this morning as we read from the 110th Psalm? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me? Father God, you bless us beyond anything we deserve. It would be right and just for you to have utterly destroyed us in our sin, to cast us into complete and utter darkness, to never look upon us with your smiling face, to never allow us entry into your presence, to never entertain our prayers, and to turn away our worship. Father God, on account of your son, Jesus Christ, you've welcomed us into this place. You've heard our prayers, you've answered our cries, and you delight in doing us good. Father, we thank you. We're overwhelmed with gratitude, the opportunity to gather together as your saints to sing your praises. We're amazed that today we can gather together around your word and see you and know you more fully. Father, we're thankful for the people that are in this room. We're thankful for this family that you have built. We're thankful for the way that you have gifted each and every one of us. We're thankful, Father, that you've allowed us to bring those gifts into this place to build each other up, that we are strengthened by our brothers and sisters. As we walk together through this life, we hold up each other's arms when the times get hard, that we remind each other what your word says, that we call each other back from darkness. Father, we thank you for this people. We thank you for the work you're doing in our lives now. We thank you for the work that you will do in the future. Father, our only request this morning is that you be glorified, that you use us to your own glory. We are your vessels. We exist to magnify your name. So glorify yourself now as we study your word. Would you keep every distraction away? Would you calm our our hearts? Would you sharpen our minds? Would you increase our affections through this word that you've so graciously given us? Father, we trust that you will. For we pray it in your son's precious name, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I believe that we have some unfinished business. When we ran out of time during our gathering together on the last Lord's Day, we had just come to a peculiar text about a naked man running around on the Mount of Olives. We simply ran out of time before we had the opportunity to try to understand what we intended to do with this. Now, you'll recall that Jesus has just been betrayed and arrested by sinful men. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, he had come leading a tremendous mob out to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus and the other 11 had gathered together there. Now, it would have been impossible to miss this great crowd that was coming out. You remember that this was a Roman cohort, as many as 600 Roman soldiers. Along with them was some portion of the temple police, and then, of course, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Perhaps as many as 1,000 men 
coming out with lanterns and torches and clubs and swords to arrest Jesus. Now the Lord had just finished praying. He had just gone to the Father and he had been strengthened. An angel of the Lord had come and strengthened Jesus and he stood up with absolute commitment. In the words of Isaiah 50, he had set his face like flint. Nothing was going to keep him from the cross. Now Jesus' friends had fallen asleep. They were overcome with sorrow and they intended to pray just as Jesus had told them. They intended to stay alert, stay on guard, and to pray that they might not fall into temptation, but they were weak. They had fallen asleep. So Jesus comes to them and he says, rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately the confrontation begins. Judas leads the crowd up to the, to the area of the garden, immediately coming up to Jesus and crying out, Rabbi. Then he showers him with kisses. This was the prearranged sign. This kiss from Judas to Jesus. They had prearranged this sign that this would be the way by which these Romans would know Jesus is the man. That's the one that you're to arrest. Now John tells us that Jesus looks up and asks the men, whom do you seek? Who have you come to arrest? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. To which Jesus replies, ego ami, I am. A clear declaration of divinity. The name of God, Yahweh, I am. I am the eternal God. I am the infinite God. I am the God that has created and sustains the entire universe. I am God. And the men stumbled back and fell to the ground. No man can stand before the power of that name. Yet Jesus didn't destroy him. He didn't escape. He allowed this mob to regather themselves. Then he asked them, if you come out with clubs and swords to arrest me, like some type of highway robber, like a violent man, I was in the temple all week long. I was, te I was teaching and open. I was welcoming crowds to myself. But you were too afraid to arrest me then in broad daylight before the eyes of men. But let the scripture be fulfilled. I will do everything that my father has called me to do. Lead me away, but you must let my friends go. We saw a clear picture of the ministry of intercession in the life of Jesus right there. See, these men weren't ready for the trial of standing before the Sanhedrin. Their faith couldn't stand up to such a thing. They would have their day. There would come a time when they would stand before this very same council and they would preach this very same gospel despite threats of beatings, despite threats of death, despite threats that they would lose everything that they once held dear on that time. After they had been filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped fully for the ministry that lay ahead, they would stand before the Sanhedrin and they would endure well. Their faith would endure to the end. They would not be shaken. But on this night, Jesus had to protect them. Their faith couldn't stand up to this test. So he would make sure that his men could be allowed to walk away. So Luke tells us that at that point, Jesus looks to the crowd. And I have to imagine maybe he made direct eye contact with Judas. As he says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. See, for three, men, three years, these men had been seeking to lay hands on Jesus, but they had not been able to put so much as a finger upon him until now. Now was the time. Now was the hour. This was the hour. The hour when the darkness of their hearts, the hatred that had been building within their hearts for Jesus, their resentment for the Son of God, this was the hour for them to give full expression to that. Jesus wouldn't allow his disciples to fight back. He would not call down from heaven 12 legions of angels to defend him. He would commit himself into the hands of sinful men. They would do exactly as they desired. They would do exactly as Satan had been tempting them. They would do exactly as God had preordained to take place before the foundation of the world. So the soldiers lead Jesus away, and the apostles, they all left him and fled. Just as Jesus had foretold, his closest companions, they would run away in fear, utterly abandoning him. Jesus would face this trial, this torment, completely alone. From this moment forward, we're no longer going to see Jesus surrounded by those who love him. We're no longer going to see him surrounded by his committed disciples. We're not even going to see him anymore surrounded by crowds seeking to hear his teaching or to see his miraculous works. From this moment forward, instead, we're going to see Jesus surrounded by men who chain him, who mock him, who spit upon and slap and beat and utterly hate the Son of the Most High God. They hate Christ and they hate his gospel. Then as Jesus is being led away, we come to these very curious verses. Mark 14, beginning in verse 51, and a young man followed him. 
with nothing but a linen cloth about his body, and they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, as we concluded our time last week, and I left this poor naked man just kind of suspended out there, I thought to myself, Josh, that was stupid. You set this thing up like a cliffhanger. And so surely some of the congregation, they're going to be thinking about that all week, and they're going to come back with great anticipation that you're going to mesmerize them with some incredible information about who this naked guy was and why he was running around in a full moon with his full moon hanging out. What's going on? So let me go ahead and let you down now. I don't know what we do with this. I I really don't know what we're intended to do with this passage. I do know about all the theories, but frankly, they're nothing more than slightly educated guesses. I guess that perhaps the one that's most attractive to me, the one that seems to make the most sense, is that perhaps this man was the author of this gospel. Perhaps this was a self-deprecating way for John Mark to introduce himself. To let us know that he too was there on that night. That would certainly be an interesting way to make it known, wouldn't it? Now we base this on the fact that in Acts 12, Acts 12 verse 12, we find that the early church would gather in the house of John Mark's mother, a lady called Mary. This is where Peter went. You remember the night when he was set free from jail by the angel? We're told that Peter goes to this house, the house of Mary, John Mark's mother, and that the saints were gathered together there. Because of this, many Christians believe that perhaps... This was the same house where the Last Supper, where the last true Passover had just been received. If this is the case, if this is the case, it seems like perhaps Judas would have led this great mob there, and it was late, so John Mark had probably laid down for the night. He hears what's happening with this great crowd. He jumps up in great haste, no time to get dressed, wraps himself in his bed sheets, and he takes off to try and catch Jesus and the others to warn them about what's happening. Now, again, this is pure conjecture. Don't stake your eternity on this. Think this is perhaps what might have happened? But you must know that if God wanted you to know for certain who this man was, he would tell you. In the words of Alistair Begg, the main things are the plain things. But what we do know is this. This man had come to meet this group in great haste. At this point, Jesus was already being led away. Now, some commentators, they tell us that this man was some sort of a hero. They build this man up, this naked man. He was... You see, he was more steadfast than even the apostles. This man continued to follow after Jesus Christ and this mob even after everybody else had run away. I don't know that that's true. Seems to me that this man came up and he had missed all of the other events. So he wanted to know what was happening. And so perhaps he followed Jesus and the mob at at, at a great distance. But then it wouldn't have been hard for the soldiers or for one of the the, um, the temple police to look up and recognize, this dude's not wearing any clothes. He doesn't belong here. So they would have approached him. They try to seize this man. And yet, like Joseph with Potiphar's wife, he bolts. You can have my blankie. I'm gone because it's not safe here. He recognizes what it's going to cost him to follow after Jesus Christ. And so he runs, leaving his linen cloth in the hand of the one that tried to grab him. So he bolts, running naked under the full moon of that night on the Mount of Olives. So yes, maybe this is Mark's way of introducing himself to us. But I think the main point is this. Jesus is truly, utterly abandoned. Not just by his closest friends, even by this man, whoever he was. This man that thought it was good, thought it was important enough that he would jump up without even getting dressed and run out to be with Jesus and to be with the crowd. And yet perhaps he would run away in the end. This seems like maybe this was an exclamation point on the abandonment of Jesus Christ. That man would rather run away naked and ashamed from Jesus Christ than to continue following after him and suffer. By all earthly accounts, things couldn't have been going a whole lot worse. Contrast this with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem just days earlier. He rolled in on the colt of a donkey and men were shouting out songs of praise to God, taking the very coats off their back, laying them on the ground as a sign of absolute submission to the coming king of Israel. The great throngs that would come to the temple courts to hear the teaching of Jesus. They were amazed at the way that he could put these religious leaders in their place. You see, at that point, it would have appeared to the apostles like everything was going swimmingly, exactly what they had hoped for. Maybe all the stuff that Jesus had said about being arrested and killed and suffering for the sake of the gospel, maybe that was all hyperbole. Maybe he really was going to be the Christ, the Messiah that they had hoped for. But now he was being led away, 
shackled, and abandoned. This was not at all what the Jewish people had expected in the coming of Christ. And yet every bit of it happened exactly as he had said. It was all of God. It was exactly as his hand and his plan had predestined to take place all for his glory and for our good. So that catches us up. I ask you to go ahead and stand on your feet, please. As we turn to this morning's text, we continue working verse by verse through Mark's gospel. We're still in the 14th chapter. We begin in verse 53. This is the word of God. And they led Jesus to the high priests, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him and to say to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, help us see what we have not yet seen. Help us to receive, help us to understand, help us to believe, help us to walk in obedience to the word that we have just heard. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I I do want to set the stage for you just a little bit further because God willing, we're going to continue to be here for a number of weeks. You need to know that Jesus is going to face two trials, one religious and one political that each of these trials is going to come in three stages. As for the religious trial, his trial before the religious leaders, Jesus will first face a pre-trial, a deposition of sorts. Then there's going to be something like an arraignment where Jesus is charged by the high priest. And then once the sun comes up, the official religious trial. Then with regards to the political, he's going to be taken before Pilate. The case is going to be presented then, and then he's going to be sent off to Herod. Herod won't be able to do anything with him. Then he will come back to Pilate where he will be officially sentenced to death. Two trials in three stages each. Now the first portion of the religious trial, it's only recorded for us by the apostle John. We read in John 18 verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was the high priest that year. So this man called Annas, not only... Had he been, the, not only was he the father-in-law of the current high priest, this man called Caiaphas, but he himself had once been the high priest. In AD 6, Annas had been appointed as the high priest by the Roman governor of Syria called Quirinius. So in AD 6, this man had been placed as the high priest over Israel. Then what happened though was they found that he was hard to control. He was much harder to control than a number of the other high priests. And so he was deposed in the year A.D. 14. But even after being deposed, this man called Annas, he continued to hold on to great amounts of power. Not only because he had once been the high priest, but because five of his sons, one of his grandsons, and then Caiaphas, his son-in-law, all held that same position as high priest. And so before going to appear before the sitting high priest, Caiaphas, Jesus must appear before this man. This man who held great power, this man called Annas. So Annas questions Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. But Jesus tells the man, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard what I said to them. They know what I said. Jesus was right, of course. He had had spoken with absolute openness. He wasn't doing this in secret. He was in the synagogues. He was in the temple. He was where everyone could see. If this man or any other truly sought to know what Jesus had taught, 
If they truly sought to know what he and his disciples were all about, they would have had any number of witnesses they could have gone and spoken to. So Jesus was not going to respond. But it's at that point that one of the temple officers strikes Jesus with his hand. This is going to be the first of many blows in the hours to come. But he asks him, is that any way to answer the high priest? Jesus says, if what I said is wrong, then bear witness about me. But if what I said is true, why do you strike me? Of course, there is no right response to this. There was no way that they could truly respond, rightly respond to what Jesus had said. So they send him away. Then Mark tells us, verse 53, and they led Jesus to the high priests and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Luke tells us that this was in the high priest's house. Again, John confirms for us that this was Caiaphas. It wasn't just Caiaphas though, the whole gang was there. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. These men who had for so long longed for this moment, this chance to condemn Jesus. Since the very beginning of his earthly ministry, he had been such a thorn in in their side. He had no concern for their traditions. He was not upset over their disapproval. And all the crowds, they seemed to flock to him. They saw no option but to destroy Jesus. And now, their hour of darkness had come. So they were going to gather together even before before the sun came up. Verse 54, and Peter had allowed him, excuse me, and Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. Now this is typical Markian style. You see, we're not going to study Peter's failure until next week, God willing. But Mark inserts this this little tidbit here. He's just setting the stage. He's reminding us where Peter is and what he's doing at these moments. So we read that Peter had followed along, that he found a place there in the courtyard along with these guards who hadn't been allowed to go any further. And you have to imagine that echoing in Peter's ears are the words that Jesus has said to him. Peter, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. You remember that Peter didn't believe this to be true. He protested. He said, Jesus, even if I must die, I will not deny you. But that was before the mob. That was before Jesus told Peter and the others they could not use force to defend him or themselves. That was before Jesus had been led away in shackles. And so Peter was clearly shook. He would continue to follow Jesus, but at a safe distance. Now he sits here in the quad down below, He's sitting, he's mixed in somehow, blended in amongst the mob. And he's warming warming himself by the fire. You see at 2,500 foot elevation, even in springtime, in that dry air that you find there, it can get very, very cool once the sun goes down. So Peter's there and he's finding a place to warm himself. Matthew tells us that Peter was there to see the end. Peter was wanting to know how this trial was going to play out. And honestly, I have to imagine that Peter didn't know what else to do. I'm reminded of the apostles' response after Jesus had fed the 5,000. You remember the crowd came seeking to make him their king? And Jesus gave them some very difficult teaching about eating his, uh, eating his flesh and drinking his blood. We read that many disciples from that moment forward no longer followed Jesus. It's at that point that Jesus looked to the other 12 and said, don't you want to walk away as well? But we read that they said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Church, Peter still knew. Peter still knew that Jesus, he was still convinced that Jesus was the Holy One of God, but he was scared to death. Perhaps for the first time, Peter recognized what the true cost of discipleship was. And so while the Lord stood all alone facing this trial, these beatings, this mockery, this rejection, Peter would be nice and comfy sitting around a fire. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. Of course, this is not news to us, is it? All the way back in the second chapter of Mark's gospel, the scribes, they, they watched on as Jesus said to a paralytic man, son, your sins have been forgiven. And then he heals him. But the religious leaders, they, they were outraged. Why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? By the time we reach the third chapter, we read about Jesus healing a man with a withered hand in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and it was a setup. The man's hand really was withered, and he really did need help, but the religious leaders, they were watching to see if Jesus would break their tradition, to see if he would go against the oral law that they had handed down. Because you see, God's law allowed for men to do good even on the day of rest. God's law allowed you to save life, to do good for those that were in danger, even on this day of rest, even on the Sabbath. 
And yet these men, they had stacked their oral law, their traditions on top of the law of God. And so the Pharisees immediately went out and held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. This was the pattern for the next three years. The religious leaders coming together, even with people they couldn't otherwise stand, coming together even even with outsiders with the joint purpose of trapping and destroying Jesus. And we see all of this coming to a crescendo right here on Holy Week. He was on their turf and he was pressing the issue. And so we read that the chief priests and the scribes, they were seeking to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. These powerful men, they had already made up their minds, Jesus must die. Now, they just had to figure out what to charge him with. Church, do you see how backwards this is? These men began with the mindset that Jesus must die. Not only had they determined his guilt, they had already passed the sentence. This hearing, it wasn't about determining truth. It wasn't about gathering facts to determine whether Jesus was in fact guilty. They were merely looking for anything they could gather to support their conclusion. Church, I wish I could tell you that this methodology is unique, but it most certainly is not. We see this practiced all around us. Men choose a team. They make up their minds on some issue long before having all the facts, long before even entertaining a balanced response from the other time, from the other side, long before spending any time digging and actually trying to ascertain what is true. They establish what they believe More often than not, based on pride or selfishness and emotions. They determine the end, and then they seek out whatever evidence they can find to support their preconceived notions of the truth. If they can't find that evidence, or if perhaps that evidence is weak, they will fight like the devil to keep from being exposed to any counter evidence which might force them to deal with their preconceived notions. They will fight with everything within them to make certain that their little ears and their little heart don't have to deal with anything that challenges their worldview. Sadly, I'm not just talking about non-believers. This type of nonsense invades Christian hearts and Christian minds and Christian churches all the time. Yes, of course, we see it in the secular world. Yes, of course, we see it in the world of politics. Yes, of course, we see it all around us. But even looking within the church, you'll find men infected with this exact kind of thinking, this exact methodology. It's almost always driven by tradition mixed with emotion. Men and women who claim to follow Jesus Christ, they pass judgment on a matter without daring to dig any deeper, without making any effort to ascertain reality. And then when you approach these brothers and sisters, these folks that claim to love Jesus Christ and be standard bearers for the truth, when you approach these brothers and sisters in love and you call them to sit down, you plead with them to allow the infallible, all-sufficient word of God to reveal what is true and to judge what is error. More specifically, when you ask them to examine their own hearts, to hold their own heart against the standard of the gospel that they profess, they often respond with anger and irrationality. They run together and they huddle up with their own little counsel. They're seeking out people that are sure to affirm their feelings and to allow them to feel justified in their ongoing sin. So the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Of course there was no good testimony. They were not going to be able to find one honest soul that could say that Jesus even so much as uttered a careless word. This wouldn't stop them. They would run in witness after witness. But lies can't hold up. Lies can't match up. Eventually lies fall apart and they would not agree. Now they certainly could have found men. They certainly could have found plenty of witnesses whose testimony would have agreed. Whose testimony would have matched up. Could they not find any that was in that great crowd that was there on the day when he raised Lazarus from the dead? Perhaps one of the lepers or the blind men or the lame people or the parents that brought their precious children to Jesus Christ that he might heal them with a word or a touch. What about the people that he had set free from demon possession? You don't think one of them would have loved to give testimony about this one that had set them free? Did nobody know the woman with the bleeding problem that just touched the hem of his garment? Someone drag her in here. 
or perhaps just any of the people that had come to trust in Jesus Christ this week as a result of his teaching. There would have been any number of people that they could have gladly brought before this council and heard the absolute truth. But dear friends, those who are deceived like this, those who have staked their lives on a lie, they do not allow themselves to be exposed to something like this because deep down they know that they hold on to something so incredibly fragile that the only way they can protect it is to make sure it's never tested. They didn't want to hear the truth. They didn't want to know reality. They didn't want to have to possibly change their worldview. So what do they do? And again, dear friends, it's not just the council on this night. It is Christian men and women all over this world. They accuse and they demonize anyone or anything that challenges what they've held on to. They make whatever excuse they must make to never sit down before the almighty word of God and be tested by the truth that's found there. Verse 57, and some stood up and bore false witness against him saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. Now we studied Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple some time back, but that was a private teaching. You remember, that was just Jesus and the apostles as they were headed across the Kidron Valley and back up the Mount of Olives. And he said nothing there about the rebuilding of a temple, so that doesn't seem to be what they're referring to. It seems to me that what these men are doing is they're twisting Jesus' teaching from his first Passover in Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. That conflict is only recorded for us in John's Gospel, John chapter 2. Again, this was the first of three Passovers that Jesus observed during his earthly ministry. This was the first of two times that Jesus would cleanse out the temple. Much like the conflict that we saw on this week, this holy week, the Jews wanted to know by what authority had Jesus acted. And so they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will rise it up. So the people were in utter disbelief. This temple had been under construction for 46 years. It would not be completed for nearly four more decades. And Jesus says that he could rebuild it in three days. He could, of course, but that wasn't what he was talking about. He was talking about the temple of his body. These men would put him to death. These men would destroy his body. And yet in three days, he would rise again. But those who are opposed to Jesus Christ, they would never understand a thing like this. It's only those men whose eyes have been opened. It's only those who have come to truly see Jesus Christ. It's only those who have been enlightened by the work of the Holy Spirit. Only they would be able to look beyond the physical, would be able to hear beyond the physical and see the spiritual. So these so-called witnesses, they came forward and their whole story had completely changed. By this point, what they had heard Jesus saying, what they believed that Jesus said, was that he was going to destroy this physical temple and build up some other. But even in this, their testimony didn't agree. Do you see the kangaroo court that they've stacked on this day? You see the way that they've allowed only witnesses for the prosecution and no one in defense. This is a clear violation of Jewish law. But then again, this whole trial was unlawful. Much of what we know about first century Jewish law, we know from a document called the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a compilation of Jewish oral law. After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD and the persecution that was coming upon the Jewish people, they began to get anxious. What happens if we lose our law, our, our, the traditions of our laws? What happens if this stuff is lost forever? And so in the early third century, I think it was the year 220, somewhere around there, they decided we're going to compile on all of this into one document to make sure that it's not lost. And what you will find in the fourth volume in the fourth section of the Mishnah is laws regarding how trials are to be held where the outcome of that trial may mean a death sentence for the accused. And even if you just make a cursory look on this document, you find all kinds of issues with this trial. Firstly, capital cases were never to be heard at nighttime, only in the day. But these men, they gathered together in the darkness of night. Secondly, these 
trials like this, they were to be heard only at the appointed time, the proper public appointed time and public place where all the world can see. Instead, they met in the, uh, the private home of Caiaphas. In addition to this, it was illegal to hold a capital trial on the day of or the day before a Sabbath, and yet they met together on the day before the Passover lamb would be sacrificed. In addition to this, if any of the witnesses perjured themselves, if anyone bore false witness according to God's law, According to the word, not only were they breaking the ninth commandment, but whatever the punishment was meant to bring upon the accused, they themselves must, must suffer that punishment for bringing false witness. In addition to this, in the instances of capital cases, you could only issue your judgment on that same day if the judgment was innocent. If you were going to condemn the men to die, you had to wait until the next day. This is a way of making sure that you didn't rush in to rash judgments. And yet we know that in a matter of hours, Jesus would be upon the cross. Now we could go on and on, but I think that you see the point here. These men who so claimed to love the law of God, these men who had literally devoted themselves to knowing and defending and teaching and applying the law of God, they were so blinded by their hatred of Jesus Christ that they willingly and knowingly trespassed this thing that they loved most. Dear friends, these men loved the law of God more than you could ever imagine, but they loved themselves more. And Jesus was a threat to them. So they would trespass this law that they claimed to love. And perhaps most concerning about this is that they did it feeling completely justified. Dear friends, this is the power of sin. This is what it looks like to be enslaved to sin. The ends justifies the means. I will stretch the rules. I will bend the law. I will do things that I know are an offense against God. I will do things that I know are not of God. I will do things that I know put me in opposition to God. But the ends justifies the means. Jesus is just such a bad guy. We can't prove it, but everybody just knows it. So these men put themselves in opposition to the law. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? What is this that these men testify against you? This trial was going nowhere. If they were going to pin something on Jesus, if they were going to condemn Jesus to death, they were going to have to get him to incriminate himself. They were going to have to get him to say something that gave them a leg to stand on. And so Caiaphas asked Jesus, don't you have anything to say for yourself? Now I have to imagine that Jesus was thinking, I got a lot to say, buddy boy. Caiaphas, you think that you hold the power here? You think that you are the high priest? You have no clue. You, the temple, the sacrifices, the ordinances, the feasts, everything that you hold dear, it is all but a shadow of me. Caiaphas, on your best day, when your heart and your motives and your mind are most pure, you are at best a signpost, a placeholder, one pointing forward to the one that stands before you today. Caiaphas, day after day after day, you must offer the blood of sacrifices. And someday, Caiaphas, you will die and you'll be replaced by another. Eventually, the temple in which you offer these sacrifices, it will be utterly destroyed. But for now, your work continues to go on because you cannot atone for the sins of men. Not in your ministry and not in the bloods of the blood of the animals that you offer. Caiaphas, don't you know that the one that stands before you today, I am the true temple. I am the great high priest. I am the Passover lamb. And when my work is done, I sit down because I am finished. Buddy boy, do I have something to say for myself? What I say to you, Caiaphas, is stand down. Stand down because I am here. But instead, Jesus doesn't utter a word. He remains silent and he makes no answer. These questions, these accusations, these incredible witnesses, they all spoke for themselves. Jesus wasn't going to give them an answer. They didn't warrant an answer. And Jesus' silence fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Finally, we get to the heart of the matter. Whether these men realize it or not, this night was not about healings or miracles. This night was not about the temple. This night was not even about the law. This was the issue. 
This is the most critical thing, not just for those men standing there on that night, but for every single one of you sitting in this room on this moment. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the son of the blessed? That's just a reverent way of asking, is he the son of God? That's two questions, not one. The Jewish people did not understand that Messiah, that the Christ would be none other than the son of God himself, the infinite and eternal son of God. But this is the heart of the matter. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the son of God? You remember that Jesus brought his disciples to this question long time before this. Remember that Jesus looked to them and he asked, who do you say that I am? Nothing is more important than this. Nothing is more important in all the universe than your answer to this question, who do you say that Jesus is? And we're not just talking about head knowledge. If you truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you truly believe that Jesus is the son of the most high God, then you must cherish him as your everything. You must find in him your only hope. You must find in him your ultimate treasure. If you really believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you really believe that he is God incarnate, come to save men, then dear friends, you must put the full weight of everything that you are and everything that you have and everything that you hope for in him. This is the issue. This is the question. This is what Jesus had been revealing all along. Everything hinged on this. Jesus knew it and Caiaphas knew it. That's why Matthew tells us that the high priest looks at Jesus and he says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the son of God? I adjure you by the living God. This is a way of Caiaphas putting Jesus under oath. I put you under oath before God. Tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? That's exactly the way the King James Version reads. You are now under oath. Tell us this answer. Now, all throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen that Jesus was dead set on keeping this thing a secret. You remember all the way back in Mark chapter one is Jesus set a man free from an unclean spirit that the, the spirit cried out and he said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked the demon and commanded that he remain silent. Just a few verses later, we read that Jesus healed men who were sick with, with various kinds of diseases, and he cast out many demons, but he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. Again, in chapter three, we read that whenever unclean spirits saw Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And he strict, strictly ordered them not to make this known. So you start to get the impression that maybe only the unclean spirits, mainly, maybe only the demons will ever know the true identity of Jesus Christ. But then we meet another demoniac, a truly tormented man, a man in the land of the Gerasenes. Remember it's there that Jesus cast out many demons into pigs, destroying those pigs. The people were terrified. But this once demonized man, this madman that lived among the tombs, he followed Jesus and his disciples to the boat and he says, let me come with you. Jesus told him, no, friend. You're to go home and tell everyone what the Lord has done for you. This man was going to be on mission in the Decapolis long before the apostles ever went out and shared the gospel. And we talked back then about why. Why would Jesus command the people in Galilee? Why would Jesus command the Jewish people to remain silent while allowing this man in the Gentile region of the Decapolis to go and spread news about who he was? And it was because the Jewish people had preconceived notions. They had their own understanding of who the Christ was, who Messiah was. To them, he would be a military and political leader. He would come to defeat the Romans. He would come to set up an immediate and earthly kingdom, a kingdom that only the Jewish people had access to. So any, mission of, any mention of Messiah, any mention of the Christ, it was gonna be immediately misunderstood, clouded with overly patriotic fervor. And so we see that Jesus was consistently telling his men they must remain quiet about this. This is why we finally read when, whenever Peter makes this confession, speaking on behalf of the other 12, when he says, we know that you are the Christ, the son of the most high God, Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about himself because the Jewish people just weren't ready. Truthfully, the apostles weren't ready either. Even when we get to the, the account of the ascension, even as we get to the book of Acts, we see that they look and when they say, Jesus, is it at this time that you will now reestablish, reconfirm the kingdom of Israel? Old paradigms die hard. These men just weren't ready. Despite all of Isaiah's prophecy, 
about the suffering servant, the one who came to lay down his life, despite Jesus' clear teaching that that was why he had come, there was no place in the theology of most Jewish people for the Christ being none other than the Son of God. And there was even less room in their theology for Messiah to come and lay down his life, to come and give his life as a ransom and die an atoning death for the sins of his people. It simply did not compute. But what about now? What about on this night with the cross just hours away? Would Jesus speak so openly, so publicly on the record about his identity? Verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Dear friends, the world was about to see. The world was about to see plain as day what the Christ, what the son of the most high God had come to accomplish, not in taking up his sword, not in aligning himself with strong political allies, not in establishing political kingdoms. He would suffer and he would die. He would lay down his life for the sake of sinful men. And these fools, they surely thought that Jesus was going to fight, that he was going to plead, that he was going to beg to try and save his life. Dear friends, look to your Savior and you see the perfect picture of what you do before the world when they have nothing that you want. You want to know how you keep the world from bullying you? You want to know how you stand firm on the day of your trial? You want to know how you make certain that your faith endures to the end? You cherish the glory of God more than anything the world can take or give. You stand before them and say, do your best, buddy boy. You have nothing I want. You can take nothing I need. I'm here seeking the glory of God. I want to see the kingdom of God, and you don't control that. You can't take it from me. As a matter of fact, in this moment, you are reaping upon me. You are storing up for me treasures in heaven by the offense, by the violence, by the despicable acts that you do to me in this night. So do your worst. Dear friends, you look to Jesus Christ and you see this picture. What we seek to do in this place. Do you want to know how I seek to prepare you for the day that is coming? And the day is coming. The day is coming. You people aren't blind. You're not fools. The world hates us. They may not fully know how much just yet. And maybe we just hadn't got on their radar yet. But a church like this that preaches a gospel like this, you will become public enemy number one. And you want to know the way that I prepare you for that day? It's not by telling you how strong you are. It's not by telling you how pretty you are. It's not by telling you that it won't be that bad. It's not by telling you that you won't die. It's by holding before you the glory of God in Christ and saying he's worth more. You cherish him more than anything that they can take from you, even your life, even your children, even your livelihood. You say, I cherish the glory of God more than anything else, and I will gladly lay it all down in that day. Jesus isn't scared. He said, I've come to glorify the Father. This is this day. But they would have expected him to plead. Instead, he said, I've come to lay down my life, and you have no idea that I've been orchestrating all eternity towards this moment. This is a predestined plan of God. You know why you stand before me and accuse me today? Because my Father ordained that it would be so. I'm laid down my life. My God is not caught off guard, He's not reacting to you fools. You're doing what your evil hearts desire. You're doing what Satan has tempted you to do, and you are playing into my Father's hand. You're accomplishing his will even now. This is the hour of your darkness. This is the hour of my glory. That's why we see Jesus saying to them, just days earlier, John 12, 23 to 24, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. This was the hour of darkness. Satan would do his worst. These men would do their worst. But this was the hour of the glory of the Son of God. This is the way that the kingdom comes. This is the way that citizens are set free from slavery to sin and slavery to Satan and slavery to death and brought into the kingdom of God. Their evil, their darkness, their sin used for his glory and our good. This is why Messiah had come. And it was time for them to hear. It was time for them to know. So he says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. The Son of Man. 
This is Jesus' favorite self-identification, the Son of Man. It comes from Daniel 7. We studied this text an awful lot, didn't we? Back when we were walking through the Olivet Discourse. We read Daniel 7, verse 13. I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. The son of man comes with the clouds of heaven to the ancients of days. This is God. Now a number of possible interpretations we could take with regards to this. And again, we spent a lot of time studying Daniel 7, but some people believe, many, I think, perhaps the majority of people believe that what Jesus is talking about here is his ultimate and final return. That last day of the last days when that trumpet sounds and we see Jesus coming in the ultimate show of power and glory and might. When he comes to resurrect the dead, when he comes to judge them all, when he comes to cast all, all his enemies, evil and sin and sinners, even death itself, into the lake of eternal fire. When he comes to reign physically and personally with his church forever in the new heavens and the new earth. The difference, this day is guaranteed to come. This day will come. It's our ultimate hope. And many of you, many men, they believe that that's what Jesus is talking about both here and in Mark 13. If that's what you believe, that's a very good interpretation. It's a very fine, those are very good thoughts to have about what Jesus is saying on this day. Where I struggle personally is the fact that he says that these men would see. I, I continue to get caught up on this, and I believe that perhaps when I look at this or when I look at the words in Mark 13, 30, where he says, truly I say to you, this generation shall not pass away until all these things take place. I believe that whatever it means for the Son of Man to be coming with the clouds of heaven, to be seated at the right hand of the Father, to receive all honor and power and glory and dominion, that whatever this means, it was a thing that they would see evidence of within the lifetime of most people standing there on that day at that time. That this was going to be some clear physical picture to a spiritual reality. Some clear sign to the world that the Son of Man has in fact ascended to the right hand of the Father. That he reigns today. That he is in fact the conquering Christ, the almighty son of God, and that even now his kingdom comes, that we don't wait for the future, that today Jesus Christ reigns. Now some wonder if that sign wasn't found in the resurrection. Some wonder if that sign wasn't found in the day of Pentecost with the sending of the Holy Spirit. But again, where I get tripped up is that Daniel says that we will see the son of man coming to the ancient of days. It seems to me that this is a, a picture of Jesus returning to the father, not a picture of him coming to us. I presented to you the case way back when that I believe that this is a picture of what they would see in the destruction of the Jewish temple, the end to the Jewish sacrificial system, the end of this thing that they once held most dear, the end of this place where they once knew God's presence to most fully dwell. This was evidence that no, it is in Jesus Christ and him alone that you come to God. But whatever the proper interpretation of this text is, whether you believe that it's the coming of Jesus Christ and he's coming, and on that day, we shall all know that he reigns. We shall all know that he is who he says he is. Whether it's the resurrection, because on that day, we do know that it was finished. Whether it's the sending of the Holy Spirit, it's the day of Pentecost, because we know at that time, he is truly with us until the end of the age. Or whether it's in the destruction of the temple, when we know that no longer do men come to God through temples made with human hands. Whatever the case, the purpose here is clear. Jesus is confirming boldly and undeniably, I am the Christ. I am the son of God. I am the one with all power and dominion and authority and a kingdom that shall not end. And soon enough, you will see it too. Verse 63, and the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witness do we need? Now the tearing of garments this is an official sign of sorrow and mourning. But I assure you, dear friends, the high priest was not sad. He was not offended on behalf of God. This man got exactly what he wanted. This is what Caiaphas had been pining for for three years. He wasn't sorrowful. Now, he may have been filled with anger, but this anger was driven by nothing but selfishness and pride, a desire to defend his own little kingdom, his hatred for Jesus. Deep down, Caiaphas had exactly what he wanted. He was utterly giddy in this moment. Things couldn't have been going any better for him. We said that things looked as bleak as possible for Jesus Christ. Things couldn't have been looking any better for this man, for Caiaphas. Number one, he was going to get to destroy Jesus. And number two, he was going to get to be seen as a defender of the Jewish faith. 
So he says, what further witness do we need? Verse 64, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all de- de- uh, condemned him as deserving death. What further witness? You have no witness. All you have is the straightforward testimony of Jesus Christ. And Christian, you must know that the darker this world gets, the greater the dividing line becomes between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of man. The more they press down upon us, you must know that the most fundamental confessions of faith, that Jesus Christ is Lord, demanding of all worship and honor and praise and obedience, that that will be found as a crime deserving of death. Now the charge here was one of blasphemy. And technically speaking, blasphemy is to speak profanely about God. Now, if Jesus was just an ordinary man, perhaps an upstart, a a religious zealot of some sort, if he was just an ordinary man claiming to be the son of God, certainly I believe that would have classified as blasphemy. But these men never took time to actually consider whether or not it was true. Again, they wrote the story before they even heard the facts. There was plenty of evidence out there that Jesus was who he said he was, and his teaching and his healing and his raising dead men to life. Nicodemus believed. Joseph of Arimathea believed. But these men would not. They were so blinded by sin. They were so hardened in their heart. They were so spiritually dead. God had handed them over to this, and they would not believe. And so they all condemned him as deserving of death. Verse 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards, they received him with blows. Matthew tells us that they beat Jesus Christ with their fists. They mocked him. They would cover his face. You tell us you're a prophet? Then prophesy. Tell us who has hit you. They spit in his face. It's a universal sign of contempt and disdain. And then as Jesus was led down to the courtyard, the guards slapped his face. They received him with blows. Dear friends, there is no violence. There is no hatred like that of those who feel themselves justified in delivering it. Religious pride is the vilest of sins. And yet Jesus doesn't protest. He doesn't fight back. In the words of Isaiah 56, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheek to those who pull out my beard. I did not hide my face from disgrace and spitting. He didn't hide his face. He took the humiliation. He took the disgrace. He took the spitting and the beating and the slapping and the mocking all for the glory of God and for the love of his sheep. Dear friend, someone dares to speak a bad word about me and I go apoplectic. Someone dishonors me and steps on my toes, assaults my little kingdom, they must be destroyed. Now you must know that the grace that was exhibited by Jesus Christ in these moments, it only served to further harden these men. They hated absolutely everything that Jesus was and everything that he came to deliver to them. This message that he preached that insinuated that they were somehow in need of the mercy of God. The fact that Jesus could care less about their titles 
He was not impressed with how long they had served in the temple. He was not amazed by how much of the Torah they could recite by heart. He didn't praise men because of their outward religious acts. His message was clear. You are a sinner. You are a sinner and you are not right with God. In fact, there is nothing you can do to be made right with God. He rejects your prayers and he abhors your sacrifices. There is only one solution. Repent. Repent. Fall on your face. Let loose of everything that you once held dear and die. Die to yourself. Die to your sin. Die to your pride. Die to your good works. You must die. But I come to bring good news. I come to bring the most glorious news in the history of the world. If you will trust in me, if you will put all of your weight on me, you will be joined with me in my death. I die the death that you deserve, but it will be credited to your account. It will be as if you yourself have died the death that your sins deserve. You'll be joined with me in my death and your sins will be wiped clean. You'll be joined with me in my death and my father's wrath for you will be appeased. And then when I rise from the grave, when I rise in glory, when I show to you that it is truly finished, that I am the son of the most high God, that I have conquered every last enemy, you too will rise in victory. This is the offer. There is no other negotiation. There is no counter. There is no trying it out. There is no half-hearted commitment. There is no wandering along for a while. He says, I am king of kings and lord of lords, and I reign from heaven today. These are the only terms of peace. Repent and die. Do this, and you will be saved. If you will renounce everything that you have and follow me, there will be no end to the blessings that you receive. You will have glory like you have never known, but there is no in-between. If you reject this offer, there is no in-between. You're either a son of God or you're a child of the devil. You do not get to play around in the in-betweens. I come to offer this to you today. Come and follow me and live or continue on the path that you are going down with the rest of the world and you will die. And dear friends, you must know you must know that there are many professing Christians. I don't know how many times I've looked into the eyes of professing Christians and I've delivered this message and I've been received with absolute venom. To suggest that I must repent? To suggest that I'm not truly following after Jesus Christ? You see, men and women, they somehow believe that they have followed Jesus long enough. You know how long I've taught Sunday school in this church? You know how long I've sung on that stage? You know how long I've been a deacon here? And you tell me that I'm not right with God? Or perhaps they believe their sins just aren't all that bad. Again, justified in the ways that they walk. And you come alongside those people, you say, dear brother, dear sister, you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. This is not the way that believers walk. You're walking in darkness, and in him there is no darkness. He walks in the light, and those who are with him, they will walk in the light. And I'm assuming that your profession is true. I'm assuming that your confession is real. I'm assuming that you truly want to follow Jesus Christ to the gates of glory. And so I'm calling you now, return to the light and be forgiven, or you will be lost. Dear friends, there are men and women that receive this with absolute fury. Because you must know that the true gospel of Jesus Christ is a thing that divides it cannot be met with ambivalence. It cannot be met just as some news that you've just heard out there on the radio station. This is life or death, heaven or hell, blessing or curse, absolute unquestioned submission or utter destruction. And dear friends, you must know that to reject this offer, to reject the one that comes in love and extends to you this, this offer, you must know that that is no less offensive to the God of the universe than spitting and slapping and punching and mocking his son to his face. 
Do not think because you can't get your hands on the infinite son of God that somehow your sins are less than those of Caiaphas and the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. We shall all stand before God someday and he shall say, what did you do with the message you received? So I plead with you this morning. Do not sit in this place feeling smug. Do not sit here assuming I've done did that. I prayed the prayer, I walked the aisle, I took the dunk, I've got a card in my Bible, I've got my membership written in the book somewhere, I'm good. Dear friends, don't you dare. Stand before the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be examined. Allow your heart to be exposed and then fall down on your face, either with utter ecstasy at the reality that you are his or crying out through tears of sorrow and hope that he will save you. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel, the gospel that is available only in him. Father, we know how easy the path to deception is. We know how easy it is to sit in a church like this and to hear these words. These are hard words. How then can a man be saved? It's impossible. It is impossible with man. But with you, nothing is impossible. But it is so easy to sit in a room like this and you hear these words and you hear only darkness. If you're a child of the darkness, what you hear in these words is only darkness. No hope, no joy. But for those that are yours, for those that you give eyes to see and ears to hear, they will hear the joy. They will hear the hope. They will hear the promise of salvation in your son. And I plead with you, Father, please. There's one here that is not saved. Save them. Save them. For those that are yours, encourage us. Father, we want to leave this place prepared to run through brick walls, to face the firing squad, to receive the scorn and the degradation and the hatred of the world because we have seen your glory. Have your way with us, Father. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.